Well, as I said earlier, I was on vacation this last week, and so when I do that, I try to completely unplug, and I didn't want to have to prep a sermon today, uh, and so I'm bringing in a good uh, friend of ours to come and preach to you today. His name is John Ryan. Um, I'm not, I don't want to make you feel too old, John, but the first time I heard John speak, uh, I was actually in college over at Missouri Baptist uh, University, and he was in speaking for a, I don't know, Campus Crusade or something, and, um, and shared just a, a really clear strong biblical gospel message and I was like man this guy gets it I came to find out that he was actually a church planter back before church planting was even cool um, and he planted uh, the summit church out in St. Charles area and uh, since then has just been building up that church and planting more churches and sending guys out and just this guy has been in the church planting world and really uh, doing a fantastic job leading in many ways in that world for many many years so we're blessed to have him here at our new young church plant to bring the word to us today. He's now over uh, at Matthias's Lot Church in St. Charles. He's serving there in leadership development and helping raise up more guys to go out and spread the gospel. Amen. So can you guys make John feel welcome this morning? So good morning. Uh, last night my wife and I were trying to figure out how to get here and so we looked online to your website and we saw your one-year anniversary video and I see a lot of faces I recognize. Some of you guys from the video. I love church plants and church planting. And what uh, really stirred my heart last night as I was watching the video of your one-year anniversary, which was actually a year and a half ago, I think now. Um, but what stirred my heart is just that there's the reality that God, sometimes you forget, can I say this, that God's at work um, because you feel like he's not really that much at work in your own life or in the things that you're around that you're doing. And sometimes the things you're in the middle of just seem dark and heavy and whatever is going on, and you, you believe God's there, you believe God's with you, you just forget God's at work. And so it's good to see God at work in the middle of stuff. And so I was stirred last night. I love church plants and church planting. 21 years ago, we planted a church in O'Fallon, got to be a part of that whole process. And so for 20 years, we, we planted a church, we pastored a church, and we sent out church planters and pastors. And then somewhere near that last couple of end of years of that, God started calling me to be more full-time about sending people out. And it was the most difficult act of obedience I think I've ever done was leaving after 20 years of being a part of the church plan I was at. The second most difficult part, maybe or the first, I, I would say maybe this is even harder, was actually sending our sons out. And so we have two sons that are 22 and 19, and for some of you that are parents and you have little kids right now, you're thinking that's going to be a glorious day. Maybe. And I will tell you, it'll also be one of the hardest things you ever do, is you get to send out kids that you've raised up. And so my wife is here today. Her name is Fran. We've been married for 29 years. And raise your hand because everybody's going to know who you are. There you are. Um, and I, she can tell you a whole lot more than I can that what's happened over the last 21 years for us has been crazy good and also crazy hard. And so enough about us for just a second. I want to jump into this with a question this morning. What is your comfort go-to food? Like if you walk out of here today and you get that phone call and you're thinking, oh no, I just don't want to deal with this. And then you're going to go grab food for the rest of the day. What's it going to be? What are you going to go get? Tell me. What kind of chips? Tortilla chips. Just tortilla chips. Guacamole. Okay. Somebody said Chick-fil-A, God's food. Who said that? There you go. What else? Pizza. Any kind of pizza in particular? Like from a place. What's your favorite place? No, no favorite place. Any kind of pizza. Emo's. All right. Well, we're getting specific there. Yeah, there we go. What else? Ice cream. Ice. Any kind of particular ice cream? Ben and Jerry's 
when the spoon when the spoon hits the bottom, right? Not not less little serving size stuff, right? Yeah. Anything that somebody makes for you that's comfort food, like grilled cheese, tomato soup, anything like that. Some lasagna? Did you say lasagna back there? Yeah, that can be good stuff. Can we ask another way? What's your comfort activity? Sleeping. That is one of my favorite comfort activities also. What else? Netflix, yeah. Binge watching like 13 hours of stuff and you wake up and think, is it still the same day? Right? My sons, when my oldest son, when he was little, it was this blanket, his thumb and the tag from that blanket. We still have that blanket for some reason. I'm not sure why my wife wants to keep that thing, but it's nasty. But it has this little hanging tag and he used to grab that tag and grab the blanket and grab his thumb and all would go in his mouth and the world was good. We spent a lot of money and years trying to get him to let go of that thing. With He loves hot sauce now because we stuck his hands in all sorts of spicy things to get him to let go of that thing. It never worked. About 12, he let go of that thing, I think. But comfort is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, I think God's put something in us in this broken world to long for comfort. The, the issue is that we're longing for something we're not fully going to get here. Book of Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, it says it this way that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. That sounds like a place where there's going to be comfort in here, but also out here, right? But what does God promise for now? Like in the middle of this broken world where you and I are dealing with all of these things, we're dealing with tears and death and mourning and crying. What, what does God promise for now? We're going to be in John chapter 14 and really talking about this idea of comfort that God brings to us. So if you do have a Bible, I encourage you to go there. John chapter 14, verse 1. It's the last night of Jesus' life. And he begins this whole conversation on the last night of his life. He's just gotten through washing the disciples' feet. And he begins this conversation, this whole round, this idea of how he's going to be comforted by saying this. He opens it with them in verse 1 of chapter 14, saying, let not your heart be troubled. Why does he start there? Why does he start with, don't, don't let your heart be troubled? Two things for context. One, he's just told, that excuse me, I'm going to back up here a little bit. Everything's good. He's just told the disciples, hey, you know what? I'm good. He's just told the disciples he's going to die. Things you don't do while you're preaching, knock to stand over, but we're good. He's just told the disciples he's going to die several times. And so you can imagine if someone that you've been walking with for three and a half years has told you, hey, I'm going to die, that there would be some disturbance in the innards of your gut. He's also looked at the whole group and said, one of you is going to betray me, which no doubt disturbed the group. And then he looked at Peter and said, hey, you know what? You're going to want to follow me to where I'm going, and you're, you're not even going to be able to get out of your own way before the rooster crows three times. You're going to run. And in the middle of all that conversation, he sees what's going on inside them. He sees the, the turmoil in their own heart, and he starts with this, let not your heart be troubled. Let's unpack the word trouble, because Jesus is pouring out a ton of love on his disciples here. Have you ever been in a car wreck that wasn't just like a little fender bender, but one of those car wrecks that absolutely like took um, you and just shook it up, like not necessarily even always physically, but just shook you up so that you were disoriented, overwhelmed, a little bit pained, 
filled and full of some fear and maybe even some sadness, one of those kind of car wrecks. When I was a senior in high school. I was on my way to play golf for maybe the fifth time in my entire life. This was a, a happy day because I was just learning how to do something with a bunch of people I really liked to be around. I was in my dad's giant 1981 Osmobile, and it was this big, huge tank of a car. And I was driving down the main street of our town in Harlingen, Texas, the very bottom of Texas, where Mexico, the water, and Gulf of Mexico meet. And I was driving to play golf for maybe the fifth time, very hot summer day. And I came up to a stoplight. And, and what you normally do when you're coming up to a yellow stoplight is you run through it. But I was right near the police station. I had some wherewithal as an 18-year-old at this point, who knows where it came from, to slow down. And so I slowed down pretty quickly to that stoplight. And that was the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember, I was sitting on the curb like so, thinking to myself, self, you're bleeding, because I could see blood coming off my head. And then the next thought I had was, don't bleed on your new shirt. I'd never had a golf shirt in my life, and I was wearing one. Who knows what I had underneath here? I probably had my Daisy Dukes on. This was 1982, by the way. And so I probably had these really short shorts on. But I had a golf shirt on, the first one I'd ever had in my life. And I remember thinking to myself, don't bleed on yourself. Too late. I had blood all over my shirt. I had no idea what I was doing sitting on this curb. All I remember was sitting here thinking, why are you bleeding? Don't get blood on your new shirt. And then I started remembering things. I started going, oh. And I looked up and I saw my car and the whole back end of my car was like crunched in and there was a truck on top of my car. What I found out later is this lady that was, and this is before cell phones, so she wasn't looking at a phone. Who knows what she was doing? But she was driving probably about 30, 40 miles an hour. I stopped, she didn't. Didn't hit her brakes or anything, just ran right through the back of me. No airbags were invented at this point in time of the world, and so my head, even though I had a seatbelt on, went forward, hit the windshield, cracked the windshield, came back, you know, I'm a little bit of a concussion, it was real on, full on. I was starting to remember, oh, I was going to play golf, dang. And then I looked up and saw the car and went, oh, my dad's going to be mad. And there's this big sense of all these things, overwhelming, fear, pain. That's what this word troubled means. This word troubled when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, is this combination of any of these things or all of these things? And right at this moment, it's probably all of these things for the disciple. There was, there was this overwhelming fear and frustration and pain and just disturbance like you'd been taken and just shaken up. Jesus isn't saying this is a sin. When he's saying, don't let your heart be troubled, he's not saying it's a sin because three times this word gets used for Jesus in, in this passage right through here in John, that Jesus says his own heart is troubled. And so when your heart gets troubled, it's not a sin, but Jesus at this point is going to tell the disciples, I don't want your heart to live in this condition because he knows what happens to us when our heart gets troubled, when it gets overwhelmed, and there's pain, and there's sadness, or there's grief, and it gets shaken up so much so that we don't know what to do with it, is that you and I seek comfort. That's where comfort food comes in, where comfort activities come in. And Jesus knows that if we don't go to the comforter, that all of our pursuits for comfort are going to end up somewhere not good. So he starts off with this command for us, and then he gives us three promises. And the command is this. Believe in God, believe also in me. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he gives them a not a suggestion, it's, it's really a condition for the three promises. There's going to be three promises about comfort that God wants to lay out for us today that I believe will, will actually maybe today change the way some of us seek comfort and rely on things for comfort. Nothing wrong with grilled cheese and tomato soup. Man, I love that on a certain day. But when it becomes the place that you and I go to for our hearts being shaken up, something we're saying something about who we think God is. 
And Jesus says, I don't want you to live this way because ultimately at the end of the day, we, our belly may feel better, but our heart doesn't, no matter how great the grilled cheese is. So he says, believe in God, believe also in me. What does the word believe there mean? Micah just used the word a minute ago when he's talking about John 3.16. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, and there's that word believe, right? In the, in the scripture, the word believe in the New Testament is this idea. It's to, it's to put yourself completely on something. It's our word, maybe trust. It's not the intellectual idea of I believe like planes fly. It's the functional idea of actually getting on a plane. See the difference? Like a lot of us believe planes can fly. Some of us just hate to fly, don't we? Some of us believe in certain things, but we won't put ourselves in the middle of it. And those are two different things. This word believe in the language of the scripture means actually sit yourself to trust yourself to. And every one of you did it when you walked in here this morning. You just sat on these chairs because something in you without having to, most of you didn't do this to see if it's going to hold you up. Now, if you're a big fella, maybe you did. But most of you didn't. You just sat down on the chairs because you just believe it's going to hold you up. What happens to people when they sit on chairs that don't work, though? All of us giggles. Hopefully someone's filming it, right? Because it goes down we all laugh because he trusted something that didn't work. The word believe here means to rest yourself completely on, to rest your soul on. And Jesus is saying this, believe in God, believe also in me. If you've, remember who he's talking to. This isn't on the side of the hill to 5,000 people. He's talking to 11 disciples at this point because one of them has already left, Judas. So he's talking to his followers and he's saying, you believe, you've trusted your soul to God. Trust also me. Trust your soul to me. This isn't just a, a plea for salvation for his disciples because in John 13 where he's washing their feet, he's already told Peter, maybe some of the others that he said to them when he was washing their feet, I'm not washing your feet to make your soul clean. You're already clean, Peter, because there had been this belief on Peter's part in Jesus being the Messiah. Could he fully understand Jesus was going to the cross to die for him? I don't know. But God had looked at him through Jesus and said, you are clean. And so this wasn't just Jesus' appeal to them for salvation. For sure, this is how you and I find our sins forgiven and removed from us, is completely trusting ourselves on the person and work of Jesus. It's where salvation comes. It's when we rest our soul completely on the work of Christ. But this isn't a salvation message that Jesus is delivering to these disciples when he starts off with the context of let not your hearts be troubled. Something else is, is going on here that he's having a conversation with and it leads us to our first promise, if you will. There's an issue of where we go when we're most troubled and Jesus knows this, that where we go when we're most troubled is going to say a lot about what we've really resting our soul on. And I'll ask you, when, you're, when your heart is most troubled, when your heart is most disturbed, shaken up, fear, overwhelming, where do you go for comfort? And ponder that for a minute. Where do you go? And it may happen this week where you, just, where you got overwhelmed for a moment. Where did you go? Sometimes we react with prayer. We just sit down and we pray. Wonderful moments. There's other times when that's not where we go where we pick up the phone and we call the person we love the most, which isn't a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a horrible thing. But that's a lot of the times where I go when I'm most disturbed. I'll pick up my phone and call my wife. There's other times where I'll just come home and turn on the TV. You do that, right? You just come home and you just want to veg out. You want to turn it off. Some of you mow the grass, which is, I don't understand. That's not my go-to comfort place. Some of us grab the bag of chips. Where do you go? Here's, here's promise number one that Jesus gives them. 
is that we can actually be with God. And that sounds like a duh, but Jesus wants us to remember this. You can actually be with God in the middle of their most disturbed moments in your life. And I'll ask you this, how many of you believe that? Like, would rest your soul on that, that in the most disturbed moments of your heart's existence, that God's actually with you? I had a girlfriend when I was in fourth grade. You remember those? Not mine, but do you remember yours? Boyfriend, girlfriend, fourth grade? You remember that? It kind of went like this, like she told her friend who told her friend that told her friend that told my friend that told this friend that, hey, she likes you. Remember how that worked? And then you told your friend who told that friend who told that girl who told that girl told that girl. Well, because you like him, he likes you too, because that's how that works. You don't ever like a girl that didn't like you first, not in third grade. And so there was this relationship through about seven different people, and you were never near each other. I don't think I ever like got close to sitting near her because that would be way too much like just craziness in third grade. But you had this like budding romance through like seven people and you saw each other from across the room and you know maybe you, in the cafeteria you actually sat at the same table, but you really never spoke to each other except through notes. And I, I have a feeling that for a lot of us that's our relationship with God. Like Micah hears something from God that that somehow comes into something through his life and then comes out through a sermon and you hear it and you digest it with somebody else in your small group and talk about it and it comes and there's this relationship with God but it's kind of at a distance so much so that when your heart gets really wrecked he's not the first place you trust to go to for comfort. Jesus is trying to Give them something different. Verse 2, he says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. Here's where he starts unpacking the first promise. If it were not so, what I've told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. He's telling his disciples, we're going to be together, I promise. I'm not lying about this. And in verse 3, he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also, what? Be also. Be with me. The purpose of this is for you and I to be with him, not near him, not close by, but with him. And you need to hear this as strongly as you can. There are no kids' tables in heaven. You know what I mean by kids' tables? Have you ever had one of those, those places, Thanksgiving, Christmas, where you'd go eat when you were a kid, and all the adults sat over there, and then all the kids sat over here? We had that in Hope, Arkansas, where my grandmother lived. There was a big table. Somebody's head just looked up when I said Hope, Arkansas. Somebody know where that is? Nobody? You don't need to. You know where that is. But your head's the one that went up. Isn't that crazy? My grandmother's from. My mom's from there too. Big table, little table, medium table, kids' table. Now, the only good thing about sitting at the kids' table it was near the oven where the homemade yeast rolls came out of. And because I was the littlest in this whole gang, I got to grab one on the way out, burn my ham a couple of times, but it was worth the, worth the fire to get some homemade yeast rolls. But I always wanted to sit over there. I don't know why. Every once in a while, they would just laugh out loud. <laughs> and you would think as a little kid, What's going on over there? They must be having fun. Because everybody over here at this table was just eating, you know, and, and throwing stuff at each other. And, and I was little, so getting picked on, and, and I, I didn't want to sit there. There's no kids' tables in heaven. You will sit at the table of the feast, of the banqueting feast, with God in his presence. I don't know how billions are going to do that, but hear me. There is no kids' table in heaven. You will be with God. But he's not just talking about then. He's talking about now, and he's going to make that real specifically clear in verse 7. He's going to say that. He's going to say, even now you can be with me and know me. 
But Jesus is making a point here that the first promise in the middle of our most shook up moments that we can actually be with God. In verse 4 he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. He's going to help them understand why they can be with him. And he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. What does Jesus mean you know the way? This is hugely important because it's going to lead us to the second promise. To understand this, I think we need to back up to verse 2 and kind of sleuth this out. Jesus is going to help us. What does he mean by you know the way to where I'm going? Verse 2 again says, in my father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Question, is Jesus literally telling them that he's going to physically prepare a room for them? Is that what he's saying to them? Because what has he already said in verse 2? In my father's house are what? Many rooms. So what, is he going to like finish out the rooms? Is that where he was going? The same one who like flung the stars into creation with a word is actually literally going to take time to go back and make your room. Is that what he's saying? Fix your bed, lay out the mint so that when you get to heaven, it's like, hey, it's all ready. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's not saying I'm physically going to go back and get the hammer out and like prepare your room. I think that's done. I think what he's saying is I'm preparing the way to where you were going. In my father's house are many rooms, Right? This whole phrase, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I'm, I'm going. He's used this before in John 13, 33. He tells a group, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. He tells Peter, when Peter says, I want to go where, you're, where you are, Jesus, verse 36, chapter 13. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. But you will follow afterwards. Where was he telling Peter? Was he talking about heaven? No, he was talking about his crucifixion. When he says, I'm going to prepare a way for you, what he's saying is this, I'm going to make the way for you to be with me, which leads us to our our second promise that Jesus is laying out for us here. The cross is our only way to be with God. Now, I'll come back to the chair for a moment. And I think most of you in this room that are followers of Christ get this, that when we rest ourselves on the person and work of Christ, that one of the promises of that is that he forgives our sins. And it's not just that he forgives our sins. He tells us that he'll actually come to be with us through the power of his Holy Spirit. We get actually the presence of God. But I'll ask you this. When you're in your most disturbed moment, when you're, when you're in that moment when you're sitting in the middle of your heart being troubled and, and you can't even remember what's going on, when blood's dripping on your new golf shirt, metaphorically or physically, do you believe that the work of Christ really allows you to be with Christ. Because functionally, there are times we absolutely forget that, isn't it? Functionally, there are times we absolutely run to a lot of other places but God for comfort and his presence that's with us. So Thomas, being what most of us really want to ask, asks the question in verse 5. Uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? How do we know we're going to be with you? Remember, he's not just talking about salvation here. The whole conversation is centered around this. You guys are just so in angst. There's such a disturbance, such a hurt, such a frustration, overwhelming fear going on inside of you. You, you long for comfort at this moment. You, and he tells them, here's the first promise. God is going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. But here's how I'm going to be with you as he starts to unroll this. Verse 6, it's going to get some teeth here, the promise of God being with us, some handles for us. I'm the way and the truth and the life. One of the most powerful verses that we could ever share with someone about being with God that allows us to be with God. He says, there's no other way to the Father except through me. But at this moment, he's not just talking to them about salvation. He's talking to them about how they can actually 
be with God in the middle of their most disturbed moments. Why is he laying this out this way? When was the last time that you were really overwhelmed and you really went to God and you really believed that there was nothing you had to do to get the comfort of God? You just would cry out, God, I need you. Those times have happened, for sure, maybe, for you. But how many times have you also cried out to God believing there was something you needed to do to get his care at that moment? And I'll, I'll, I'll flesh it out this way for you. When was the last time you felt like God owed you? When was the last time that you were in the middle of something horrendously bad that you thought in your head, I don't deserve this. I've done this, I've done this, my family's done this. When was the last time your wife was in the middle of something horrendous that you thought she doesn't deserve this? She spent her whole life doing, or a little child was in the middle of something, three-year-old, and you thought, God, they don't deserve this, they're innocent. Because I think sometimes we would never verbalize with our mouth, if I do this, God, you owe me this, but the reaction of our heart a lot of times when we get into painful moments is, here's mine, this isn't fair. You ever thought that? This isn't fair. Why are we saying that? All sorts of reasons. Because what I've done doesn't equal this going on in my life. Or what she's done isn't equal going on. But there's other people over here living like hell. Looks like they're living in heaven. I'm trying to live in heaven and I'm getting hell. This isn't fair. And so there's something going on in my soul that says, you know what? The very presence of God to comfort me at this moment is something that I, I have... I need to do something for because obviously I'm not doing it right or I wouldn't be getting this hell right this moment. And what I'm not believing is the second promise here, that if I just trust that the work and the presence of Christ is mine through the work of Christ, that he'll actually be with me in the middle of the craziness I can't understand. I don't understand why I'm going through this. I don't understand why she's going through this. I don't understand why this three-year-old's going through this. But my comfort is not in how much I pray, how much I read, how much I come to church, how much I give, all the things that I do, all that I've done in the past, all the things I'm going to do in my future. It's not my work that gives me the presence of God. It's his work that gives me the presence of God. And that sounds so elementary, but I promise you, for most of us, we struggle really believing that when the pain gets loud enough. And so when the pain gets loud enough and we don't feel like God's with us, we stop resting our soul on the work of Christ and we start putting it on other things. And I'll ask you again, where do you rest your soul for comfort? I think there's two places we go when God feels distant and far. One is just on overtly evil things. And I want to show you a list here of things that I think are some of our go-to comfort things. There's a reason that Christian pastors on that top one of porn there are just racked by that. I get to work with tons of church planners and pastors, and I can't tell you how many guys are stuck in porn that are pastors. Tons. And it's not because it's a sexual outlet. It's because it's a comfort outlet for most Maybe it's not that for you. Maybe it's gossip and slander or something comforting 
when, when you can be like destroying somebody else when you feel like you've been destroyed? And you may say, well, that's weird. Tell me you've never done that. Tell me you've never wanted to destroy somebody else when you've just been destroyed. And in your most evil and sinful moment, we've gone there. Drunkenness. Scripture tells us all through the scripture that drunkenness is a sin. Different people vary on whether or not a drink or whatever is not, but scripture is real clear, like 12 glasses of wine, that's not good, right? And that's obviously sometimes where we go for comfort. It starts off as one and we end up at 12 and we've gone from like, I just need a drink to this is going to be my comforter. And then the last one, sexual immorality. I mean, sex is definitely one of the biggest comfort. I mean, it's a phrase used all over TV shows, comfort sex. And we all get it that those are all things outside of God's design that are evil. And, and we understand probably why God doesn't want us to do these things. But there's another list I want to give you. These are other things that in and of themselves aren't evil, but can also be places where we go to for comfort that actually, actually lead us from the very presence of God. Someone said Netflix a minute ago. I'm not down on your Netflix. I watch Netflix too. But listen, how many times have you in this room or I in this room like, like lost track of what day it is because of watching things that we just absolutely lost ourselves in for hours or weeks and we watched 24 episodes of something in like two days I knew a guy once that watched all of Lost in a week like that's like seven nine seasons of something I didn't even know you physically could do that if you watched every episode just back to back I don't know if you could pull that off in a week I know a guy that did it I'm telling you that's not healthy or good and some of you are thinking I'd love to do that okay we need to have a conversation afterwards Food, right? Food in and of itself is not evil. But food can definitely be a comfort go-to place. And it's one of those things as Christians we have a hard time talking to each other about. Like we'll talk about the porn thing. Food, we're like, yeah, they just eat a lot. Relationships. Some of us have bar friends, boyfriends, virtual friends that become our comfort go-to, right? Games and sports. I mean, goodness. That was, that was is, if I had to claim one of those. That's mine. Sometimes it's doing this, right, on your phone. Sometimes it's watching it. As old as I am, it's not as participating in it near as much anymore, but it used to be. All these things in and of themselves aren't evil. None of them are. But when you don't believe God can be comfort, you will run to anything and everything for comfort. And we soon learn to numb our troubled heart with either evil things or other things. And the wreckage doesn't go away just because you numb it for a little while. Matter of fact, all that happens is we get, a, we get really good at numbing ourselves or forgetting. And we, we take in all the trouble wreckage of our heart and we set it down to go watch a three-hour movie. Right? The Last Avengers was three hours. But the problem with when we walk out of that movie is that all that stuff is still there that wrecked your heart and you have to pick it back up and carry it on. And so we just have become really good as a society at numbing ourselves a little bit at a time. And there's a problem with that. There's an issue with that. Listen, here, here's what the, the deal is that God's really trying to protect us from. When we, when we allow comfort be, to become the pursuit of our life, when finding any kind of comfort becomes the pursuit of our life, you will rarely know the comfort of God. And I think for the majority of us, we've spent the majority of our life learning how to find little pieces of comfort in little things. And because of that, we really don't functionally believe God can be comfort for us. I'm not sure which is first, chicken or egg. Do I believe God's not the comfort? Do I have to work for God's comfort? Whatever it is. But we as a culture, we live in the middle of a society that we do everything we can 
to live comfortably. It's the house we live in. It's the place we move to. It's the place we move from. It's the people we hang out with. It's the job. You will endure the most rattiest, nasty job if you believe it'll allow you to provide a little more comfort for your family. Do you realize the paradox of that? That we will endure crazy relationships in order to have a little bit of comfort. We will work at a nasty job for 40 years if we think it's going to provide a little more comfort for our family or people we care about. And God's saying, listen, none of that actually gives you what your heart longs for. We all need to work. I'm not saying that. But it was never intended for this. When we allow comfort to become the pursuit of our life, we're rarely going to know the comfort of God. Verse 7, Jesus says this. leads us to our last promise. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And then he says present tense, from now on. He's talking about the fact that he's about to die. A day from now he's going to die. Three days later he's going to rise from the dead. And then something different is going to happen for us. Where he says this, so from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. The word know there is this idea of to intimately know like personal, relationally knowledge, uh, experience. It's not just an intellectual thing. Ephesians 1.13 says this, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed him, when you rested yourself on Christ and his work, This is what he says happens. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit of God. God gave you his presence. And now he says this, we can actually know him. Not like the third year, third grade girlfriend, but like the way I know my wife after 29 years of marriage. There's, There's a way different relationship going on there. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not like I knew the third grader through seven different people from a distance. I know what homemade yeast rolls smell like. I know what they taste like. I know, I know my wife, I know that when I made her a smoothie this morning that she really likes a straw more than she likes a spoon with that. So when I brought it to her, I was like, hey, here. And she goes, oh, you know me, you little straw. I'm not that great of a husband. I'll, I can tell you stories later. I, I know my 19-year-old is one of the most brilliant people I've ever been around in my entire life, but cannot remember why he went upstairs to brush his teeth. And so I don't trust him to remember things like that. He can build a bridge for us because he's going to be an engineer hopefully someday, but he will not remember the simplest of things because his brain just doesn't work that way. And I do know that God can be your comfort from experience now, because for the first 15 years of my relationship with God and Christ, I... I was not the person who rested my soul on God being my comfort. I rested my soul on so many other things being my comfort. And it still is the go-to battle in my heart of finding comfort in every place and any place but God. But I know now he is comfort. And this last promise is probably anchors all of these together and it's what's really begun to change my heart. Promise three is this, that God's presence is is with us always, and he is comfort. Let me say it another way. God is not just a pathway to comfort or someone who can give us some comfort, but literally God is comfort. This is 2 Corinthians verse 1-3. It's not on the screen, but 2 Corinthians 1-3 says this, that he is the God of all comfort. In John 14, 6, do you know what Jesus called the Holy Spirit? Comforter. It was the name for God of him being able to come and come alongside, to come inside and actually be his presence with us. 
That word gets translated a lot of different ways, helper, paraclete, comforter, but it's, it's that word. It's another name for God, and it's who God is. And it's not just that God gives us comfort when we rest our soul on him for salvation, yes, but when we come back in the middle of our most troubled moments and we say, God, I'm going to trust you with my troubled soul, God says this, you can know me. And one of the characteristics of my personhood is this, you can know my comfort. And not by any work you're going to do, not by how much you pray, not by how good you've been this past week, not by how bad you've been am I going to keep my comfort from you. Because it's based on Jesus' work, his life and his death and his resurrection that you've trusted, that brought you to me to begin with, is the same thing that allows me to be your comfort in the middle of your chaos. The difference between comfort, what I know now and 15 years ago, is radically different. And I want to tell you that it's just two things as we get ready in. There's, there's temporary comfort, which most of us absolutely go to. It's our go-to deal. And there's eternal comfort. And temporary comfort, Jesus is saying to us in this passage, will absolutely be destructive in your life. Why? Here's the first reason. Temporary comfort is destructive in our life because it keeps us from pursuing God. We don't realize this when we constantly make other things in this life the pursuit of our comfort, but when we make cheese the pursuit of our comfort, or Netflix the pursuit of our comfort, or someone else the pursuit of our comfort, and it's not God, in the most troubled times in our life, we begin to believe this, that this is what's most important to me. The people you care about most in in this life have been that important to you in troubled times. People you trust most in your life have been there in your troubled times. People you love most in your life have been there for you in their troubled times. And if you don't believe God can be there for you in your most troubled times, he will not be the pursuit of your life. He will be someone that you say, I will be with in heaven one day, but right now if I want real comfort, real peace, someone that cares about me that I trust, it's this person or it's this thing. And Jesus knows this. He longs for you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will come to you. And when we seek comfort in all these other things, we don't make Christ the pursuit of our life. He's not the one we love the most because we don't believe he's the one that we trust the most. But there's a second deadliness about pursuing other things. It makes you a really selfish person. Have you noticed people that really like, are constantly pursuing comfort are really selfish people? Like they will, they will not meet with you because they've got to watch something or they will, they, will, they will do something else for themselves always in order to... I mean, when we are constantly pursuing comfort, we become very selfish people. And we say things like this, I'm doing it for my family. And maybe you are, but all of a sudden we don't have time for anybody else in the body of Christ because we're working 75 hours a week to bring comfort to our family. And I will tell you, pursuing comfort outside the person of Christ will make you a very selfish person. You won't even recognize it. So Jesus, in the middle of this pursuits, and he's seeing the disciples heading says let not your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me you can be with me my life and my death's going to allow you to be with me all the time and I'm going to be comfort I'm going to actually be the very presence my presence with you is going to be comfort God's eternal comfort brings peace and not just peace and here's what I want you to hear comfort brings peace and healing there's two important things when God brings comfort into you and I it's peace and healing I want peace when my world's in chaos, but I also want God to restore in me that which has been broken by the chaos that's come against me or my own sin. What causes us to turn from temporary to eternal comfort as we wrap this up? I'm going to give us a couple of just real application things here. What causes us to turn from temporary comfort as a life pursuit and turn to Jesus? And the first thing I would say is that you and I, 
begin to live in a life of repentance. And I will say life of repentance because I don't think this is a one-time deal for you saying, you know what, God, I really love grilled cheese and tomato soup more than I love you. Because I think tomorrow you're going to wake up again wanting grilled cheese and tomato soup. I think today when things get tough and hard, you're going to be finding yourself in a battle between turning on the TV and listen to me, nothing evil about TV. Because it may not be TV. You may live on an iPad. And that may be your go-to comfort place. And it may be that game, right, that you finally mastered the 75th level, you know, and you look on there and how many hours you spent on that thing, you're like, ooh, goo. I just spent 72 hours of my life in the last week playing this game. I don't know what it is for you. And that's not even the issue. The issue is why. And so I think repentance is an ongoing thing for us of saying, God, I have made porn or I've made this game, or I've made this friend my pursuit of comfort and not you. And, and turning, repentance, literally the word means to turn from, right? And so we're turning from these things and saying, God, whatever this is that I've made the pursuit of comfort, God, I, I'm sorry, this is wrong. And, and we're turning to Jesus. And I think it, as we turn from this, we've got to see the beauty and the love of Christ that he's for us. Because here's the problem for most of us. We don't believe that he's comfort or we'd be sitting on him for our comfort. The reason these things are the things we run to is because we're not really sure Jesus is going to bring us comfort. We're not really sure he's really tangibly there like tomato soup is. I can taste tomato soup. I don't always taste that the Lord is good, as it says in Psalm. But he's asking you today to try him. I mean, what would happen today to generations past you if all of a sudden in your house you started believing that pursuing the Lord in the middle of your chaos was the place where comfort is found? Imagine how you could change the generations that come after you. Imagine what could happen in just your home and the homes that are going to come out of your home. Imagine what can happen in just the neighborhood that you live in if, if just you started believing that comfort wasn't just in everything that we find in this world, but actually in the presence of God. Imagine what can happen to your community group that you live in, the life groups that you live in. Imagine what can happen to this church if we started walking in repentance today of going, God, we're not going to pursue the comforts of this world the temporary things of this world, but we're actually going to pursue you and believe that if we rest ourselves on you and your work, that your presence is actually going to give us comfort. It begins with repentance, and it begins with looking at Christ and the beauty of his love for us. And, and maybe today, as we, as we end, you're going to be able to gaze at him, and we're going to, I'm actually going to walk you through a time of prayer in a second where we gaze at Christ and we see this, that God left heaven because of love for you. That he put on flesh because of love for you. That he walked this world and lived a sinless life because of his love for you. That he was beat because of his love for you. That he was whipped, he was hung naked on a cross because of his love for you. That he ultimately died because of his love for you. And even the best of all these things, he came out of the tomb because of his love for you. And so as we let go of this, what you're turning yourself to is that. The beauty of who Christ is. It's not just, oh geez, I gotta let go of tomato soup. I mean, you're actually turning yourself to something better. But today you've got to gaze at it as you turn from it. And I'm saying the same thing tomorrow morning. When you let go of it tomorrow morning, you're going to have to gaze at the love of Christ and the word and prayer with other believers, somebody else speaking the truth of resting on Christ to you. I don't know, but turn and gaze at it. But there's a second thing, and that's this, to ask God to help you believe that he actually is comfort. Not just a way to comfort, but I mean, it's the man on the road when Jesus said, hey, do you want me to heal your son? He said, yes, I, I believe, but help my what? Unbelief. And I think this is where a lot of us sit in this room. We believe God can be comfort, but we have unbelief. And so we're praying today, God, help my unbelief. 
See, when Jesus hung on the cross, he took all of your belief that comfort was in anything and everything but God, and he took all of your discomfort in that, and he gives you in exchange his comfort. It's a beautiful thing, right? All of, all of what we have held on to as comfort got put on Jesus. And all of the discomfort and numbness of all that, all the sin, all the pain, all the grief, all the shame, for that he exchanges, listen, his very presence, which is comfort to you. But it doesn't just end there. Here's the beauty of peace and healing. There's some of you in this room that it's not just your sin that you long for comfort from, it's the sin of others that you long for comfort for. That other people have sinned against you in such a painful and evil way that you're, you have a hard time believing that you can actually rest yourself on Jesus for that comfort. And I want you to hear how the cross covers that too because this is, this is powerful. Jesus knows what it's like to have other people sin against him too. You know? Jesus knows what it's like to be wrecked by another sin. But only he can offer comfort through his healing and his resurrection. So fo follow me here for this last two seconds. Jesus knows what it's like to be in a completely vulnerable situation where you can't do anything about it and be abused. Jesus knows what it's like to be stripped naked in front of people where you can't do anything about it. And Jesus knows what it's like to be evil upon evil heaped on him. Like some of you in this room may have had happen to you. But all of that evil and all that abuse didn't just kill Jesus. It didn't just put him in the grave. Listen, it, he rose from the dead to prove that he was greater than that and that his life can actually bring healing to that now. So for those of you in this room that aren't just dealing with your own sin, you're dealing with the sin of others looking for comfort from that. Listen, the one who brings peace and healing to that is also the same Christ who died for you. That in his death and his resurrection is healing for the abuse that's been done to you. And it begins and ends with you and I resting our souls on Christ saying, God, remember what Jesus said at the beginning of this? Believe in God, believe also in me. God, I don't understand how this works, but today I want to trust that you can actually bring healing to the deepest hurts. And we don't believe that, you're going to spend the rest of your life numbing that which has been done to you by other people, denying the power of the cross. And if that's where you live today, listen, man, my heart breaks for you. But today, maybe today is the beginning of a new day for you to walk into comfort in Christ. So we're going to pray. We're just going to spend a few minutes in prayer now. They're going to, guys are going to come up and we're, we're going to, I'm just going to walk you through a short prayer time and then we're going to worship in this time. I'm just going to ask you to pray with me through a couple of things here together. And we're just going to walk on a real quick prayer journey. Maybe you can follow this up in your small groups or other places. We've got questions that are going to go with you to your groups. Here's where we're going to begin in this prayer time. Maybe let's just begin at confession. Confession isn't what we do when we've been caught. Confession is us agreeing with God that our actions have taken us from him. They're not like him. And maybe confession right now for us just needs to be, God, I have pursued a lot of other things for comfort besides you. There's a lot of anything and everything in my list. And maybe you need to be specific of where, where you've taken yourself in comfort. And for some of you, it's some really evil things. For others of you, it's just some normal things that have become places of comfort. And so let's begin here in this moment and just telling God, God, I, I confess to you 
God, hear our prayers as we confess that we confess that we have made some good things in this world the best thing where we go to comfort from. And God, we've made some awful things in this world. And we've tried to make those awful things good things to find comfort. And God, we confess that those things are just not you. They're not your comfort. They're not who you are. And so God, we confess and lay those before you. Let God hear that right now. second thing we pray, that God help my unbelief. Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. And he said that so we would rest ourselves completely on him for comfort. And right now in this place, we're asking God that you would help us believe, help our unbelief that you actually are with us and that you are comfort for the deepest, deepest wounds and hurts and overwhelming pains that we've dealt with, that we've caused or others have caused. God, help us believe today. Cry that out to him right now. God, help my unbelief. Here's the last thing. We're asking God to help us know the reality of his presence, that it would be comfort. Right now in this room, God, we're asking that you would allow us to taste and see that you are good, that you are comfort. I just want you to ask him, God, be my comforter right now. You are comfort. Your presence is with me because of Christ, and I've trusted my soul to you. Be my comfort now. Tomorrow morning when I wake up, God, be our comfort. God, when we go through the day tomorrow, we're crying out, be our comfort. Call that out to him right now.